This is Lawyer to Lawyer with J. Craig Williams and Robert Ambrogi, two of the top web bloggers in the legal profession. And yes, they are attorneys, one from California and one from Massachusetts, squaring off on legal news and legal observations. Lawyer to Lawyer is sponsored by Law.com, right here on the Legal Talk Network. Welcome to Lawyer to Lawyer on the Legal Talk Network. This is Bob Ambrogi in Massachusetts. And I'm Craig Williams from sunny Southern California. But this day I'm on your side of the coast, Bob, in a cold and dreary Baltimore. Well, if it's cold and dreary in Baltimore, uh, it's actually sunny and warm in Boston today, so I'm not sure what's going on there. Uh, well, today we're going to talk about uh, the issue of overloaded public defender's offices, uh, low pay, uh, overwork, uh, and too many cases are just a few of the issues that are causing um, public defender's offices across the country to try and put a hold on taking new cases and in some cases even suing to limit uh, the numbers of cases they're having to take on. Uh, of course, uh, we all remember Gideon v. Wainwright, the U.S. Supreme Court case that ruled that uh, low indigent criminal defendants are entitled to government-paid representation. A recent New York Times article highlighted the problems plaguing public defenders, causing some to leave the profession and others to contemplate leaving due to the overwhelming workload and the effect it is having on their defendants. Uh, in Miami-Dade County, recently a judge ruled that many of those arrested on lesser felony charges could be refused representation so that a, a better defense could be provided for clients facing more serious charges. Well, that case was appealed by the state, and as of last week, the Florida Supreme Court sent the case to an appellate court for a ruling. If the judge's decision is upheld, it will force courts in the Miami-Dade area to draw lawyers from a smaller state office and contract with private lawyers to represent defendants, which will cost the state. Well, today on Lawyer to Lawyer, we're going to try and take a, a look at uh, some of the common issues that public defenders around the country are struggling with uh, and the effect on uh, the, the rights and the representation of criminal defendants and what's being done to facilitate the process and uh, and uh, ensure that uh, defendants are able to uh, achieve an adequate and a quality representation. Uh, all of us in the legal profession know it takes a, a special person to work as a public defender. Our first guest is Bennett H. Brummer, public defender in the 11th Judicial Circuit of Florida in Miami-Dade County. Bennett Brummer has dedicated his life to public service, especially to providing legal services for the poor. In 1971, Mr. Brummer joined the Dade County Public Defender's Office as an assistant public defender in the appellate division. Over the next five years, he was promoted to chief of the appellate division and later to executive assistant to the public defender. In 1976, Bennett Brummer was elected Dade County's public defender, and in November 2004, he was re-elected to his eighth consecutive term. He is responsible for an office employing approximately 400 people, including 200 attorneys, who handle about 100,000 cases per year. At the national level, he served six years on the board of directors of the National Aid and Defender Association and served on an American Bar Association task force that wrote the professional standards for criminal defense attorneys. Welcome to the show, Bennett Prommer. Thank you for having me. And then joining us next today uh, on, on the program is David Carroll. David is director of research for the National Legal Aid and Defender Association. He has uh, conducted assessments of the right to counsel in Montana, Idaho, New York, District of Columbia, Clark County, Las Vegas, uh, in, or rather Clark County in Nevada, Santa Clara County in California, and Venango County in Pennsylvania. He's consulted with numerous public defender organizations and state Supreme Courts and co-authored a report for the U.S. Department of Justice 
on the implementation and impact of indigent defense standards. In 2004, uh, the National Legal Aid and Defender Association released uh, In Defense of Public Access to Justice, a comprehensive report detailing the impact Louisiana's systematic deficiencies had on one judicial district, Avoyeles Parish. I'm not sure I'm pronouncing that right. A legislative task force on indigent defense subsequently retained Mr. Carroll to advise them on different models for delivering indigent defense services. The Louisiana State Bar Association retained NLADA to document issues in post-Katrina New Orleans and to create a roadmap for a legislative fix to the state's systemic deficiencies. The report, primarily authored by Mr. Carroll and released in September 2006, was the starting point for a legislative advisory group put together by the chair of the House Criminal Justice Committee that eventually led to the passage of the Louisiana Public Defender Act of 2007. Welcome to the show, David Carroll. Thank you very much. Well, uh, uh, Bennett Brummer, I wonder if we could start with you. You're you're there in Florida. We alluded to the situation a little bit in Dade County, but perhaps you could uh, uh, bring us up to date on what's going on there and what the situation is. Well, I know we have very limited time. All I can tell you in summary is that we've never been funded adequately, in my personal opinion, but uh, we've provided reasonably good service. In the last couple of years, we've suffered very dramatic reductions in our budget uh, starting in 2004. And as our budget has come down, our caseload has continued to increase. So we, we're in an untenable position. In, uh, in June, we went to court to ask the court for authority to decline to accept all new non-capital felony cases. And the court took a couple of months uh, to deal with this emergency situation and eventually ruled in our favor and gave us uh, part of the remedy that we requested, which was to get rid of about 60% of our new felony cases, that we didn't have to accept them. But the state uh, took an appeal, and it's been bouncing around on appeal uh, since September. There's a stay in place, and we have not been able to decline to accept one single case, even though the trial court said that the situation was uh, improper and an emergency. And are we talking here about a system of both salaried and court-appointed public defenders or, or only salaried uh, public defenders? Well, the, my office is salaried public defenders, um, and the people who would pick up the cases that we declined to accept would be private attorneys paid by the court. David, what kind of issues are public defenders facing? Why is the caseload so high? Well, I think in, in poor economic times, um, there's several factors that, that go into to place here. Um, if you think about it, when, uh, when people are out of work, when, uh, you know, there's not a lot of options, um, you tend to get um, higher uh, increases in crime. You also, at the same time, get more people qualifying to be, um, to get the services of a public defender. So all these factors come into play just at the time when states and counties don't have the revenues to pay for this service. So it's sort of a perfect storm that happens um, during these times. So as, as Bennett said, 
um, in the best of times, not being properly funded turns into these major crises when the economic uh, downturns occur. What are the implications of of these uh, of this overwork of these high caseloads? I mean, obviously there are implications for the lawyers involved uh, in, in having to work harder, but what about for the defendants involved? What does it mean for them? Well, what we've seen over and over again across the country is what I've described as assembly lines of of, of justice, and and justice probably isn't the right term, where people really just get. Um, process through the system with no one ever taking the time to look at the individual facts of their case. And it really turns into a public safety issue. When a, when a person is sent to jail simply because a public defender doesn't have the time or training to do anything other than just figure out the appropriate plea, um, the, the real perpetrator of the crime may still very well be out um, on the streets. Um, while innocent people go to jail. And that's really the, the, the major problem here that the country's facing. Yeah, I would say it's worse than that because even when we try to figure out what an appropriate plea is for a guilty person, we have no facts to go on and we tend to make simple mistakes even in calculating what the sentence ought to be. So it, it's much deeper than that. And at a, at a higher level of abstraction, that's, you know, that's, that's the practical stuff on the ground. But at a higher level of abstraction, what, we, what we're doing is emptying out the, the professional concept, the constitutional concept of uh, effective assistance of counsel. Uh, and what we're destroying is uh, our professional relationship to our client, which is what essentially defines us as attorneys. It's not our license that we have to practice law. It's the attorney-client relationship that is key to uh, being an attorney in any meaningful way. And what you do is you destroy the foundation of that. So this really takes takes the uh, takes the heart out of out of the Gideon case. I mean, you're, you're... more than that, more than Gideon, it takes away. It's not just a question of indigent defense, because what you have watching this is the prosecutor is watching this go on. The court system is watching it go on. It's not as though they don't understand what's happening before them. The prosecutor and the defenders as, and the courts, as well as the defenders, have taken an oath to support and defend the Constitution of the United States. But they watch this travesty go on, and they don't lift a finger. And what that does is it destroys the moral authority of the courts. When you do that and you destroy the integrity of the courts, uh, pretty soon in a democratic society you end up uh, with a court system that looks like the United States financial system. So, David, how, how pervasive is this situation? I mean, we, we've, we've talked about Florida and you've mentioned uh, that this is happening elsewhere in the country. Uh, how, how broad is the problem? Well, it, it, it's probably much deeper and broader than anyone in your audience would suspect. Um, you, you see uh, what Bennett's talking about in Florida, and I think most people would say, <clears throat> despite the, the, the critical funding issues there, Florida at least has some structure that allows a person like Bennett to, to challenge the system. In most parts of the country, there isn't even the semblance of a structure. Um, people should know that the majority of indigent defense services provided in this country are not through staffed public defender offices, but by private attorneys under contract, far too often with judges. 
um, that create um, complete conflicts of interest. Um, I've seen any number of places that have what's called flat fee contracts where they say, you're going to handle as many cases as comes down the pike for this one set fee. And by the way, any overhead expenses or trial level expenses has to come out of your contract. Well, that creates two problems. One, the, the attorney has a financial incentive to get rid of cases as soon as possible and to do as little as work. The other thing is, especially when the contract is with a judge, um, the, the, defend, the defense attorney doesn't need to be told affirmatively, don't file any motions in my court if they know that the judge wants to get through his docket quickly. So they're automatically taking into consideration what would please the judge to allow them to get their next contract versus what our Constitution demands, which is to look at the individual in the case and do what's needed as his or her advocate and not what's needed to sort of keep the assembly line going. Yeah, I would add one thing to that is that the courts are often facing problems of their own with financing and excessive caseloads, and so the pressure on them is is to reduce the standards uh, in their courtroom and to keep the system moving. People often wait for the wheels to fall off the system, but that never will happen because all the courts do is reduce the quality of the process, and there's an unlimited number of case numbers that you can process in a day. Uh, whereas if you're dealing with cases or you're dealing with individual defendants, you have a different story. Bennett, is there any kind of procedure that you can employ that would allow you to register uh, the objections on a case-by-case basis and and uh, kind of either block up the system or t- you know force it to go to an appellate court level to force funding? Well, I don't think it would be any more effective than what we're doing, but we could do this on a case-by-case basis. Uh, but we handle 100,000 cases a year, so it's not very efficient. We don't have the resources hardly to deal with uh, the overall problem in the aggregate. Luckily, we have Hogan and Hartson, uh, a large private firm that's representing us pro bono. It's a real credit to the profession that they would donate the thousands of hours to, to doing this. And I would say that uh, rather than going to an individual level, we're going systemically to uh, try to decline cases in all our misdemeanor courts. That's the next step. Ben, at the uh, New York Times article quoted uh, Florida State Senator uh, as, as, as saying that you are blowing this thing out of proportion and that uh, public defender's offices need to uh, perhaps uh, tighten their belts a little bit and, and engage in uh, more efficiencies, I guess. Uh, what's your response to that? Well, without engaging in any kind of personal attacks against uh, a person who would make that kind of comment, I would say that he took an oath to support the Constitution. And if his idea is that my lawyers can handle 2,000 misdemeanor cases a year and adequately do a job, if they can handle 500 felony cases per year and adequately do a job, then he's talking about a different profession than I am. But he's not a lawyer. He's a politician. Uh, besides that, this is not a decision that I make by myself, although my decision is given great weight by the courts. This is a decision that was reviewed by the courts, and the trial judge agreed with us. So, David, what 
is to be done about this on a broader scale? I mean, assuming that that funding is a, a key part of the issue here, and you know we're, we are in tight times uh, all over the country. Uh, what what's the remedy here? What what can be done about this problem? Well, I think um, <clears throat> I've found that through through our work and the work of others um, like the American Bar Association, the American Civil Liberties Union, and the National Association of Criminal Defense Lawyers, people are coming to terms with how deep this problem is. Um, in my work, I actually find that most people um, assume the right to counsel is working in our country. I call it the law and order effect that people watch um, popular television shows and they see a client in a in a police uh, holding cell asking for a lawyer and you come back from a commercial and there's the lawyer and they stay with the client all the way through till the end of their case. Um, and that may not even be true for New York City, um, but it's definitely not true for upstate New York and most of the rest of the country. Um, and so I do find by um, highlighting these issues, people do get motivated to work. I think, you know, we've seen uh, uh, in Montana, the American Civil Liberties Union brought a lawsuit. Uh, we did a, a study for that lawsuit. And once people understood the depth and breadth of the problem, they changed. In Louisiana, you may not have a system that was more dysfunctional than what um, Louisiana looked like pre-Katrina and post-Katrina, it just got worse. Um, and yet, when you highlight the problems there, uh, uh, you know the the policymakers step up to the plate and say, "We ne- we never knew it was that bad." So that's a start. But it's always a it's always a fight. Um, as I say, you see a place like Bennett's office that is generally regarded to be well-managed and efficient and well-structured, and yet they continually fight these battles. I think what's needed is really a rethinking of criminal justice policies. If If you think about sort of how economic markets work, that you're supposed to have sort of you know, people will um, sort of have have checks and balances against um, how how money's used and and whether it's being used efficiently. Right now, to uphold the right to counsel, it's going to cost a lot more money. And if I think people spent that money as the Constitution calls, they would say, "Wait, this isn't necessarily in our best interest. Let's look at." things such as decriminalization. Maybe we shouldn't be bringing as many cases as possible. Maybe some of these nonviolent stuff could be handled outside of a criminal court setting. Um, And I think what we're missing is sort of that market uh, drive of what this really costs to to meet what the Constitution's calling for. And I, I do think policymakers would be willing to grapple with some of the larger issues if they really um, we're, we're willing to step up and, and, and fund it at a constitutional level. So what we're really talking about here is wholesale changes in criminal justice policy that's needed in our country. Yeah, let me add to the need for change in policy here that what we have in this country is a, what we call the prison industrial complex to follow on Eisenhower's military industrial complex. And there's a great incentive to build prisons, to operate prisons, and to fill them up so we can build some more prisons. Uh, There's very little interest in living within our means. And even in Florida, where uh, there's no money to fund the courts, the state legislature found $300 million to build 10,000 new beds. 
even though Florida and the United States uh, as uh, communities uh, incarcerate uh, more people than any other industrialized country that I'm aware of. So there's not little incentive to do that. There's uh, not only the, the strong against crime principle, it's also if you follow the money, the, the money creates a big incentive to incarcerate people. Bennett uh, and David, we need to take a short break for a moment. We'll be right back and we'll hear more about what needs to be done to improve public legal representation. We invite you to visit Law.com for timely legal news and in-depth resources. From daily headlines to practice-specific updates, Law.com provides up-to-date information to those working in the legal profession. As part of its coverage, Law.com is proud that J. Craig Williams' blog, May It Please the Court, and Robert Ambrogi's blog, Law Sites, are part of its blog network. Don't wait any longer. Visit Law.com today and get free subscriptions of our Newswire newsletter with the top legal stories of the day. Or sign up for a free trial subscription to one of our Practice Center sections. Visit WestLegalWorks.com to register for the 12th Annual Electronic Discovery and Records Retention Conference being held October 21st and 22nd in New York City. For more information, visit WestLegalWorks.com. He was the gunner in your law school. I was captain of my law school's mock document review team. He's the last one to leave the office. Why leave work before 9 p.m.? You're just going to get stuck in traffic. And now he's kissing up to all the partners. Knowing that I made some partners a ton of money is all the reward I need. Get this year's hottest gift for attorneys, the Perfect Associate, available at PerfectPlush.com. PerfectPlush.com, your source for legal humor. That's PerfectPlush.com. Whether you're new in business or you're looking to improve your online image, visibility, and marketing, social media and networking are vital to your success. Explore the potential of these media with experts in the field via our convenient three-hour workshop. Visit www.searchitright.com and start making every click count for your business. Lawyer to Lawyer is produced by the Legal Talk Network and a staff of broadcast professionals. If you have an idea for a topic or a show, we want to hear from you. Go to LegalTalkNetwork.com and send us an email. Welcome back to Lawyer to Lawyer on the Legal Talk Network. This is Bob Ambrogi and my co-host Jay Craig Williams and I are talking to Bennett H. Brummer, uh, public defender in the 11th Judicial Circuit of Florida in Miami's Miami-Dade County. And David Carroll, Director of Research for the National Legal Aid and Defender Association. I, I wanted to bring it back to this question of, of what can be done, and, and I, I posed it as a, in my mind, as, as a as a monetary issue, a budget issue. Uh, and, and if if it is that, and I'm not sure it is that, I, I wonder whether, in in part, it is. Uh, I think, as as Benjamin just alluded to, uh, a, a, as you both just alluded to, a policy issue in the sense that uh, issues such as uh, you know desire to fill prisons, a, a mandatory uh, minimum sentencing, in uh, the like, are are requiring uh, are bringing more cases to court and, and requiring more more work. I mean, is there that policy aspect to it as well as the financial aspect? Yes, I think that what the state has done is criminalize a lot of conduct that could be handled without criminal sanctions. They want the court system and the public defenders to live within our means, but they don't want to give us the means to to do the job or to 
live within their own means when they structure the criminal justice system. For example, we handle a lot of driver license issues that are misdemeanors, which needn't be misdemeanors. And that creates a lot of work and a lot of expense and does not yield a good public safety result. There's no, there's no justification when you look at the outcomes. It just creates a lot of expense and makes a lot of people misdemeanants or, or sometimes worse. So that not only in the drug area, but with driver's licenses and, and dozens of other areas, there's a possibility of changing the process and taking people out of the criminal justice system uh, in terms of incarceration uh, that would reduce the cost and would actually improve um, improve public safety outcomes. And drug, drug treatment is one of those areas where you provide treatment for people rather than locking them up. Bennett, if this is affecting your office, how is it affecting the prosecutor's office? The same, but uh, they blink at the problem. They blink at the fact that their lawyers can't cope. Uh, and the fact that their lawyers can't cope makes our job that much more difficult because we're dealing with not only is our staff turning over, but their staff is turning over, which is very efficient, inefficient. I also think you have to realize that public defenders don't control their own caseload. Um, they are assigned by the court um, to take these cases because um, charges have been filed and this person has found to be indigent. That's not true of the prosecutors. Now, I'm not saying that prosecutors just willy-nilly uh, move forward with every case, but if prosecutors are feeling the pinch of, of budget crunches, they can actually make decisions about not bringing certain types of, of charges forward and, in fact, have an ability to control their own caseload. Public defenders do not. They have to take whatever number is given to them by the court. Bennett, what kind of money is needed to resolve this problem? I and mean, if you were to you know, get your wish list, what would you be asking for? Well, they could start by doubling my budget or giving me a 30% increase in my budget. Um, it didn't used to be so dire, but they reduced my budget so considerably over the last four years that uh, the shortfall is really immense at the present time. Bennett, explain to me what's going on in, in, in the Florida case. And I, I know you gave us an overview, but the... It's in the hands of an appellate court right now, and, and what's what's going on with that appellate court? What what is the issue before the court? What is it expected to? What is what is it being asked to do? It's being asked to review the decision of the trial judge. Uh, he decided that uh, our our caseloads were excessive, and of course they've gotten much worse in the interim since he made that ruling in September. They've gone from about. Uh, 375 felony cases per year per lawyer to about 500 in that very short time, uh, and and he's going and the appellate court is also going to have to review the remedy selected by the judge, and uh, those are two interesting issues. But the most interesting thing to me is the delay in giving us any relief, and the fact that the appellate court put a stay in place based on the fact I, I can only assume that. Uh, the state would have to spend money to uh, enforce the constitutional individual rights involved, even though case law in the state is clear that money cannot be the basis for a stay when constitutional individual rights are involved. Well, but is that within the remedial powers of the court here? I mean, could the court order the state to, to uh, in, in increase the level of funding for these programs? Well, it, I don't think it gets to the question of ordering the, the 
state legislatures to spend money, and the courts will try to do that because of separation of powers. But there is money allocated for private lawyers to handle conflict cases, and under Florida law, when we have an excessive caseload that creates a conflict, those conflict cases would qualify for payment by those millions of dollars that are sitting in Tallahassee uh, waiting for lawyers' bills to be submitted. So it's a matter of allocating the cases out of your office and into these court-appointed attorneys. Right. We haven't gotten to the, to the point where the first lawyer has been appointed on a non-capital felony case. And I, I, how are those attorneys being compensated? I mean, I know in Massachusetts, not long ago, court-appointed lawyers uh, went on strike over, over the amounts of money they were getting and started refused to take new cases because they were being paid such a low hourly rate. Well, very poorly. The, the legislature, when they started to gut our office, also... Uh, reduced the payment schedule for private attorneys to a very unreasonable level. Uh, it really amounts to, uh, to involuntary servitude of a, of a nature where they think the court can appoint private lawyers against their will and, uh, and require them to, to, to represent people. But uh, I, I don't think that this is a tenable situation, and it's going to work its way out as the pressure mounts because lawyers will not be available to, they're not going to destroy their private practices in order to handle some case where the court wants them to provide representation for some unreasonably small amount of money. David, is there a larger constitutional problem here? I mean, I, I know from in our California courts that we are dependent upon the legislature for our budget every year for the court system, and it, it seems that there's a constant battle. Isn't there a way to ensure that there is adequate funding for all three branches of the government? Well, I do think the way to go about it is for the adjudicative, the components of the adjudicative process to work closely together to say this is what we need and to recognize indigent defense as an equal partner in, in the uh, processing of justice. Um, Cal- you raise California. Um, California is just one of seven states that provide no state funding for trial-level indigent defense services. And the services there are as disparate as the economic uh, forecast for each of the um, counties. So you, you do get really great uh, programs out there like in Los Angeles and San Francisco, but then you get uh, really bad systems in the rural areas where you do have a prevalence of these flat fee contracts. But I think one of the answers is here is that courts need to step up and say, um, rather than trying to order the, the legislature to pay for this, which I do think is a separation of powers issues, they simply need to say, if the state doesn't fund the indigent defense, then the state can't prosecute the poor. And that gives them a choice about you can either fund this um, at the level that needs to be done to give someone an adequate defense, or you simply can't bring certain types of cases. Um, there was a case out of Louisiana that also stimulated a lot of the reform there called Citizen v. Louisiana. It was a death penalty case where the Louisiana Supreme Court said exactly that is that if there's not enough funding, you can't proceed with prosecutions. Well, that caught the the ear of the legislature and very quickly got them to reform their system. So I think courts um, have a role here, and I think they often uh, try to overthink this. It's a very simple issue. If you're not going to fund it, then you can't prosecute, period. Now, let me agree with David in part that uh, it would be great to be an equal partner 
but let me disagree by saying that the court overthinks this. I think the court in Florida at least has uh, a very narrow view that if they have to fight with the legislature for funding, they would rather fight for the judges and the court system than, than include the prosecutors and the defenders on the team. And so uh, I think that's one of the reasons why the appellate courts have been so slow to take any leadership role either uh, administratively with the legislature or through this litigation in, in giving us a prompt response that the situation requires. Well, that about uh, does it for us. We're getting close to the end of our time here. Before we wrap up the program, uh, we'd like to give each of you an opportunity to wrap up with your closing thoughts on this topic. Uh, and also, if you would like to provide our listeners with uh, contact information or point them to a website where they can find out more about uh, your work, uh, we encourage you to do that. So, Bennett, let's start with you and get your final thoughts. Well, first of all, let me thank you for your interest and the time you've given us. Uh, I'm reachable fairly easily on the Internet. Uh, my email is pd, as in public defender, pd at pdmiami.com, and our website is www.pdmiami.com. Uh, you'll find a lot of information there, including information relating to uh, the litigation, including all the pleadings. Uh, I would just like to conclude by saying that I view the public defenders as the as at the core of American freedom. And if we're fighting in Iraq to show them the importance of freedom and the way we can do it, it's going to be a shame if there's little of it left in America by the time those uh, military engagements are in, in Iraq and Afghanistan are, are done. Uh, we need to preserve our freedom here. We need to preserve our professionalism, which means the attorney-client uh, relationships, and uh, the service that we provide to our clients. And David Carroll, uh, your final thoughts and any contact information you'd care to provide? Sure. We, I encourage your listeners to visit the NLADA website, www.nlada.org. Um, we have lots of information about our work um, trying to protect equal justice in America on both the criminal side and, and the civil legal service side. Um, we have lots of resources for people. Our reports that we've done and evaluations are there. I encourage people to look particularly at the Michigan report called The Race to the Bottom that was released in, in June of this year. If people want to see how far off the mark a state can fall from what Gideon asked the states to do, um, just look at what's going on in Michigan. Um, people are also uh, free to, to donate to our uh, organization um, to help us keep doing the good work. Um, my closing thoughts is I want to bring this down to <clears throat> the individual. Um, if most of your listeners are in the legal profession, just think about some of the numbers that Bennett, Bennett spoke about. 500 felonies per, per lawyer per year. If you figure that most, most people work about 2,000 hours a year, you're talking about, on average, four hours to bring a felony case from assignment to resolution, even those that go to trial. Um, most people would agree in a felony case that that's not even enough time to read the police file and, and do some uh, investigation of the facts, let alone everything else. And that's four hours 
um, that assumes that the public defender is not doing any professional development or evaluation, uh, doesn't take any sick time or anything about like that. So I'm sure the numbers are much, much worse. And again, Florida is at least some structure in their system, and so the rest of America is really struggling. There was one, uh, I'll close with just one simple case to let people know um, how far off the mark states have been. Um, in Louisiana, there is a person named Johnny Lee Bell who was accused of second-degree murder. Um, he was held pretrial for up to two years, um, and when on the eve of trial, his attorney stipulated on the record that she had only spent 13 minutes with him. Um, and the judge said, well, I see no problem with that. I'll give you 24 hours to proceed, and the judge in the trial will start the next day. That night, she went home and realized not only did she have the defendant as a client, but she had the victim as a client um, uh, at the time of, of his death and had the only eyewitness to the crime, to the, uh, to the crime as a client as well went into court the next day, filed a conflict of, of interest motion to have herself with, withdraw from the case. The judge saw no problem with conflicts, ordered the trial to begin, and five hours later, Mr. Uh, Bell was convicted of second-degree murder. Now, nobody knows whether he actually committed the crime or not, um, but what they assured was that that case will be forever coming back on appeal um, until it gets done, it would have been much better to have the trial done right the first time. And let's let's figure out who really is a uh, threat to public safety and get them in, in jail where they belong. Um, but this isn't what justice is about in America, but it's what's going on every single day in the courtrooms of this country. Well, David and Bennett, thank you so much for that. And David, why don't you wrap up and give us your uh, contact information, your email Address. Sure. It's, it's D, as in David, dot Carol, C-A-R-R-O-L-L, at N-L-A-D-A dot org. Great. Well, Bob, uh, that was an interesting discussion, and uh, that does it this week's for Lawyer to Lawyer. Please remember that you can check out all of our Lawyer to Lawyer shows at thelegaltalknetwork.com. And let me add my thanks to both of our guests and, and commend them for the work that they're doing in this area. And uh, add a reminder to our listeners that we are also on iTunes in the podcast library. Uh, Thanks again to all involved. And, uh, Craig, I look forward to talking to you again next week. We will see you then, Bob, on another great, interesting legal topic. Thanks for listening to Lawyer to Lawyer with J. Craig Williams and Robert Ambrogi. We hope you'll listen again and check out our other shows on the Legal Talk Network. Lawyer to Lawyer has been sponsored by Law.com. The Lunch Hour Legal Marketing Podcast, your resource for the tips and tactical advice you need to grow your business. Plus, keep up with the news and commentary you crave to stay one step ahead. It's hosted by me, Guy Sakalakis. And me, Conrad Song. Every other week, we break down the issues holding back your marketing strategy and talk about the changes you need to be prepared for. Check out the Lunch Hour Legal Marketing Podcast wherever you get your podcasts or on YouTube.